Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 172. I have a very special guest today who is the first guest who has taken a voyage out of our planet. My guest is retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott. Nicole had a number of positions with NASA before becoming an astronaut. Uh, Some of those include an operations engineer, a shuttle flow director, the NASA convoy commander for space shuttle landings, flight hardware lead, orbiter project engineer. She's done a bunch of (laughs) really high level stuff. And in 2000, she was accepted to the program to become an astronaut. I don't want to give too much of this away because we talk about the trajectory that she did and the training. Uh, It's all incredibly, incredibly fascinating to me. Now, Nicole is no longer an active astronaut, but she does a lot of work with art and with education for youth in the fine arts fields and in the STEM fields to get kids interested in the sciences and in astronomy. This was a real, real treat. Um, I've had a a fascination with space since I was a little kid, and we get into that, but largely through consuming science fiction movies and books. And so for the hour that we got to talk, I got to geek out and uh, envision myself going to space too. So this was really, really cool. Please make sure you go to the show notes. Um, Those are in the description in whatever app you're listening to this podcast in, and you'll find a link to Nicole's personal website, and she has a very active Twitter. She was first person to tweet from the International Space Station. She's got a few firsts um, that are all really exciting. So uh, check out the Twitter account, and then check out her foundation as well, where she does good things for kids. I also have a Patreon link in the show notes for this episode and for every episode. And that's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. And my hope is to eventually do content, um, some content that is specifically for Patreon supporters. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Nicole Stott. It's incredibly exciting to have you on for a number of reasons, uh, a lot of which I'll get to. But you know, I've I've been a lot of places, but I've certainly never been out of the Earth's orbit, and you have, and that is absolutely incredible. So thank you for doing this. You're welcome. My um, pleasure. Th- there's a couple reasons why this is timely. Um, the first I'll start with is that you know about a week and a half ago, SpaceX and NASA teamed up to. To launch, right? For the first time in, I think, nine, ten years. Uh, so I, I'd imagine that you were and have been following that closely. So I was just wondering uh, what you think about that. Well, I think it's awesome. Yeah. And um, and I'm waiting for them to get home safely, too. Um, I think it's exciting, you know, on a number of levels that... Um, you know, we have this new vehicle. We're launching from U.S. soil again on a U.S. spacecraft. Um, particularly interesting to me there is that you know NASA that what you mentioned this partnership between NASA and a company like SpaceX 
NASA is also partnering with Boeing and other companies to, to help make this happen too. And just how much we can do when we have these public-private partnerships in place that can get us places we haven't been before, right? Because mm. the companies on their own would not be able to afford necessarily to do it. So, so that's great. And then I'm, I'm really excited to have seen Bob and Doug fly. Um, both of those guys were in my astronaut class uh, along with their wives. So we all started in the astronaut business at about the same time. Yeah. What is the purpose of the, the, the Dragon capsule mission? Well, it's, um, you know, ultimately it's about, for that vehicle in particular, it's about getting human beings to and from low Earth orbit again to places like the International Space Station. Uh, when we retired the space shuttle back in 2011, um, like you said, we went for nine years without having a U.S. spacecraft to take our our astronauts and also to, you know, to take international astronauts to the space station. Um, now we have that again. And, you know, I just think it's interesting to think about it from the standpoint of where it can lead. And I think that's what a company like SpaceX or the others is looking at is like, okay, I'm going to work on this low earth orbit vehicle right now. I'm going to help transport astronauts and cargo to and from places like the International Space Station. But they're also thinking beyond that to getting more and more people to space, but also to how do we go back to the moon? How do we go on to Mars? How do we develop more of these public-private partnerships that allow us to do even more in space, which I will just say right off the bat, um, everything we do in space is ultimately about improving life on Earth. So I think that's the ultimate goal. The Again, I'm a novice, but the improvements just visually seem really dramatic, like to the point where the spacesuits themselves look, I don't know, like a like a windsuit or <laughs> like a jogging suit now, whereas the ones before looked really stiff and big and clunky. Are you aware of the technological changes and improvements that have been made? Um, yeah, there's actually, I mean, there's actually been quite a bit of um, change and <clears throat> improvement, I guess, in the, the build of the suit. Um, the, the suit that Bob and Doug wore on the SpaceX flight, um, that would be comparable to the orange suits that we wore okay. to fly to and from space on the space shuttle, which in all honesty, we were really quite comfortable, very flexible, um, not really stiff at all. Um, most people, when they think about spacesuits, they think about the big bulky white ones that we use out on spacewalks. Yeah. And that's not what we use to fly to and from space. Um, essentially that orange suit we wore on the shuttle and the white one that you saw Bob and Doug wear on their Dragon launch is the pressure suit. So um, they both satisfy the same requirements. They just built into them, you know, the implementation of able to pressurize in a little bit different way than, um, than the orange suits were. I'm going to come back in a little bit to... Um like a launch itself. I've got a way that I'm sort of compartmentalizing this in my mind. But I also wanted to, to also ask the other sort of topical and, and timely reason for this conversation is that we have a new Space Force for the first time in our country and or really in the world uh, and in the history of humankind. I'm wondering uh, what, your, what your thoughts on that are. Well, I like to start off by answering that question by saying that I think we've always had a Space Force. 
that's hmm. been part of the Air Force um, called Space Command. And uh, we just haven't, you know, designated it as this separate entity within our, you know, I guess our military structure. Um, so I think that's, that's really what it's done to start is just separating out um, this idea of space versus air ah. <laughs> and coming up with a, you know, an independent um, branch of the military to do that. Um, I think that ultimately, you know, and I like to think about it in terms of peaceful uses of space, but um, in every country this exists in one way or another that has, you know, a space faring ability um, or is even thinking about one. Um, but I, I think there's a role for it as, as well um, as we, especially as we go further and further off the planet, um, how we manage ourselves, the way we uh, interact with other countries as we're hopefully doing this together, you know, jointly as earthlings yeah. <laughs> as we go off the planet. Um, and I also think there's a, just because of the way our government is set up and how things are funded that, through um, something like the Space Force, there might be opportunity to develop new technology um, that we can use as an organization like NASA that doesn't get the same level of funding. Yeah, and is the idea also that um, a Space Force would help to protect sort of like intellectual property and like data security and things like that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's the same kind of structure as what you would have in other branches as far as I know. And yeah, there's a, there's a role to play there. There's a role that NASA shouldn't play, you know, as a civilian organization either. So um, it's, it's good, I think, to keep those distinct functions. But I, you know, my hope is that if, if the Space Force develops something that allows humans to fly to and from space more efficiently, then that should be shared with, you know, with the uh, NASA community and um, the rest of the space flying people as well. Yeah, and that makes a ton of sense, right? I think that, you know, mutual collaboration and integration of different countries into this uh, would be beneficial for everyone. But on the ground, right, uh, probably since the dawn of, I don't know, if you want to say private property or civilization or, or governments, we haven't done such a good job of that. Um, and whenever you see, you know, I don't know if it's life maybe imitating art one day, but whenever you see like stories or, or science fiction movies about space, ultimately it's always like a war happening in space. I don't know if, if you think that that is a, like a potentially realistic future or not. You know, I, I would be hugely naive if I said that I didn't believe that's a possibility in the realm of things, but you know, I, I just think, you know, you talk about international cooperation, um, when we look right now where Bob and Doug traveled, you know, a week ago Saturday, where they went, the International Space Station, right? For 20 years, that International Space Station has been circling the planet every 90 minutes with representatives of 15 different countries wow. working there together. Five different space agencies, international space agencies. And I personally believe that through what we've done on the International Space Station with these international partners, and we're one crew up there. It's not like the Russians are just in the Russian segment and the U.S. are in theirs. We are one crew on one shared space station doing science and research and maintaining these facilities. And we're doing it together with this greater mission of ultimately improving life on earth. And I think it is the absolute best example for how we should be going forward in space together 
and how we actually, how we should be living like crewmates here on Spaceship Earth. It's, it's just the best model to use. Yeah, when you say, Nicole, improving life on Earth, what exactly is the work being done on the space station and what types of, I don't know if you, if you call it experiments, or what is that work and, and how might that improve you know, life for all humans? Well, I think, uh, first of all, continuing on the theme of the international cooperation, right? I mean, mm. you know, where else really have you seen at, at such a grand level, this peaceful, successful cooperation in this extreme environment that that is, you know, all it is all about improving life on Earth. It's everything from the way the space station is built, the technology that came together from all these different countries to build this one space station, best example of living off the grid that you can find. <laughs> you know, the ginormous solar rays, collecting all that solar energy to power the entire thing. Um, you know, we recycle all moisture inside of the station, including our own urine to create clean drinking water. Um, we are trying to minimize the amount of resources we take from Earth to support the astronauts living and working on the station. We're trying to, you know, live as far as possible off the grid. So there's that. The technology goes into that that allows us to live there that way, trying to mimic what Earth does for us naturally, right? Mm. And bringing that back to Earth. And then there's all the science. I mean, pretty much any area of science that you can think of, there is some kind of research or science activity going on on board the space station. And that's across all the different international partners. And we're learning more about how our bodies respond to that environment, which allows us to live in space longer, but also allows us to understand how we should be counteracting things like osteoporosis and heart disease mm. and, um, I don't know, loss of kidney function and visual issues. Because of what we're dealing in space, it's teaching us how to deal with some of those same, same things down here on Earth, not to mention the... I don't know, the um, combustion chamber experiments that are looking at new fuels and burning more efficiently and cleanly and the protein crystal growth and all of that that you would think of as normal space research. Yeah, and I have here, uh, I was thinking about the sort of social aspect of it, the social experiment, you know. I would think it's a microcosm of regular social interactions. So like maybe people have arguments and you're getting to fights or <laughs> form relationships friendship wise or even romantically. Like I would assume that all of those things under the circumstances and the conditions are intensified. Well, I mean, we train as a crew, we train for a long time before we fly to space together. Our families get to know each other. Mm. Um, we travel. Like when I prepared to go to the International Space Station on my first flight, which I spent a little over three months on the space station, I trained for three years um, for that mission. And I traveled over 50% of my time was travel to like Star City, Russia and um, and Germany and Canada and Japan with my with my crewmates mm. to to train on all of our partner organizations, you know, hardware and equipment. And yeah, I think the the, the social kind of the relationships that are developed. You know, I, I think everything we do, whether we go to space or we go on vacation or we go to work, it's all, all ends up being about the people that we share those experience, experiences with in the end. And I mean, the same thing happens in space. And on a grander level, you know, when you talk about the people of 15 different countries coming together to do this thing, that's really incredible. You know, I think it really tempers the kind of 
I don't know, tensions that might go on between those countries still down here on Earth. Hmm. So the things that are happening between the U.S. and other countries that I think they'd be a lot worse if we didn't have these very positive relationships in, in space. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, I've, I've read about, uh, you know, space debris and that there's there's constantly like debris and junk from it, whether it's exploded planets or we've had other satellites that are orbiting our Earth. When you're on the, the space station, are you ever aware of debris hitting the station? And like, does that ever become a hazard or something that you're worried about? Yeah, that's one of our, we have three main emergency situations that we um, worry about on the space station. One is fire. You don't want to fire in space. <laughs> the other is like a toxic atmosphere, like, you know, high concentration ammonia getting into your contained space station. That's really, really deadly. And the third is what we call depressurization or, oops, I've got a hole in my space station and all the air is going out. That's, that's a bad day <laughs> as well. And there is a lot of debris in space. Um, it seems like it's this big wide open space. And yet there is a lot of um, debris out there. Even things that are the size of a grain of sand, if you're traveling in opposite directions at 17,500 miles an hour, that little grain of sand can be dangerous. Too. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's one of the things that we're acutely aware of. And you know, that, that space command I mentioned, they have one of absolutely the best tracking systems for that kind of debris down to like the size of your fist or smaller. Wow. And they, they are in communication all the time with our NASA and our NASA management um, to, we put kind of this invisible bubble around the space station. And then if anything has the potential to enter that bubble, NASA gets um, advised of it. And then we have ways that we can either move the space station up or down or change its orientation or if necessary, um, we can even get into one of our Soyuz spacecraft and come home. So, yeah, that is, that's one of the big biggies. It's another movie thing, so I'm sorry if this sounds so silly. Yeah. <laughs> but whenever you see a movie, not whenever you see, but in, in some movies when there's a space station, if a fire breaks out or something does become um, it, it, a situation where an area will lose its pressure. There's always like a, a button hit and it seals off that part. And then like everyone is safe yeah. from that. That's an accurate depiction. That is, that is one of our ways of dealing with it. So say you had a, a leak in one of the modules on the space station, you know, of course, first, what we do is we get everybody out of there. We all rally into this one control center area on the station and um, if necessary, you can close the hatch on that. You can completely isolate um, all of the modules on the space station. Wow. You know, one by one, if you needed to. And that's, that's one of the ways we troubleshoot things, too. It's like we try to lock off a particular area, and if the leak stops, you know it's in the other place. So um, it's kind of cool that, that, you can do, that you can do that. Wow. Are you able to access all of the modules, or are there places like off-limits? No, all the modules are accessible by everyone. Um, there are, of course, places that you can't go unless you put on a spacesuit and go outside. Mm. Um, but all of the, like where you would normally live, is accessible to everyone. Wow. And it's ginormous. I mean, it's like the interior volume, what do they say? Like they try to equate it to like a, a big six bedroom house, you know, um, to the insides of two 747s or something. I mean, you could, with six people on board, you can go your separate ways and not see each other all day if you didn't want to. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about, I mean, I know you, you're you active with with kids and promoting education, and I, I saw that like kids are like, well, where do you go to the bathroom? And I think that's it's like yeah, a, yeah. a silly question, but I, I think it points to the larger question that I had of like, is there privacy? But it sounds like if you needed it, there is some privacy. Yeah, and so on the space station, we each have um, individual crew compartments. They're about the size of an old phone booth, if you remember what a phone booth is. Yeah. And um, it's the perfect amount of space. You can stick your sleeping bag up on the wall. You can reach everything in it. Nice fan. It's cool. It gets really dark when it's time to go to sleep. It's a, a comfortable private space. And then, of course, the, the toilet facilities are all, you know, um, contained and private. And yeah, it's, um, it's a really beautiful, like, just, I don't know. I mean, imagine you like where you're sitting right now, if you could just push off your seat and float up to the ceiling and around and all in three dimensions and, you know, fly, like really fly, move. It's just effortless. It's effortless. It's just the most liberating feeling to be able to, to live and live like that. It's funny because uh, on Saturday I was on a boat and I, I want to yeah. get to some of the aquatic stuff later, but uh, I slept on the boat and, you know, it was rocking all night. So the next morning when I woke up and I was walking around, I, you felt it a little bit. It's kind of like when you're swimming at the beach <laughs> and you can still feel the waves. When you return after such a long time at the space station, how, like what are the, how do you feel physically and how long did it take you to feel normal again? Well, that's an interesting question because it's really, it's different for everybody. There's nothing about, I thought this was really cool to think about is that there's nothing about how you felt on that boat, whether you felt good or bad, you know, felt like you're going to get sick or not, or, you know, motion sickness and other ways that's going to tell you how your body will feel going to space or coming back. Mm. Nothing. I mean, I've watched people that, um, you know, some of my crewmates who were, like military fighter pilots who do really aggressive, provocative things in airplanes, never get sick, and they were not happy for the first couple of days wow. being in space. Just were, you know, like not happy. And then it goes away and you feel good. And then when they flew again to space, they felt fine. It's like your body had this muscle memory for it. Um, coming home, the one thing everyone has in common, though, is that you feel really, really heavy. I mean, you you notice how heavy your head is. Like you feel like you have to hold your head, <laughs> hold your head up. Wow! And um, just because we just don't realize, and on a day to day basis, with um, moving around in gravity like we do, how much force is really on us. And so it's a total it's total support of the idea of just get out of it, off the couch, get up, move around every now and then, because we are doing a lot of work as human beings moving our bodies around <laughs> down here on earth. Wow. Incredible. Did that impact when you were up there? Did it impact your sleep? Did it impact your dreams? Um, I, the sleep was the best sleep I've ever had in my entire life. Um, it took about a day and a half, well, probably two days to get used to, to get comfortable sleeping because when you get to space, all that load that you have on yourself down here, that's kind of compressing your spine, holding you down to earth. That goes away. So now your spine elongates. You kind of grow. You grow. Your spine stretches out. You wow. grow. I grow about an inch and a half very quickly, like within that first day on the station. Wow. And so you get this lower, like lower back pain right off, right off. And that was uncomfortable at night to try to sleep with that. But like within a day and a half, two days, that was gone. 
And then that was the best sleep I have ever had in my life. I would float into my crew compartment, float into my sleeping bag, get into my little position, pull my Sudoku puzzles off the wall, do a couple, <laughs> you know, stick them back up and turn the light out. And I swear within five minutes, I was asleep every night and I did not wake up until either my alarm that I had set went off or some emergency alarm went off in the middle of the night. I mean, it was incredible sleep, like no pressure points, no rolling over, nothing wow. amazing. <laughs> really good. And I'd imagine that you're sort of harnessed in um, horizontally. Well, you, I mean, you have no sense of up or down at all. Um, But the way that the, the um, crew modules were configured, you would just find one of the long, long walls to stick your sleeping bag to. And then you'd, you'd float inside the sleeping bag, kind of zip it up to get you in whatever position you found comfortable and then just float that way inside the sleeping bag. Wow. On the space shuttle, I would always, when I was going to, I went to and from space on the space shuttle both times. And on the space shuttle, we don't have crew compartments. Everybody just sticks their sleeping bag to the ceiling, to the wall, to the floor, wherever, because you feel like you're floating no matter where you are. But there, I always chose the ceiling because where else can you sleep on your ceiling? So you choose the ceiling when you're in space. (laughs) Wow. When when you were on the space station, um, are you aware of any work that's being done to attempt to detect like biological or organic matter in space? Um, there are a number of, of course, inside the station, we're always measuring like, um, is there anything in the air? Is there anything on the surfaces? Is there anything growing, mold, mildew, that kind of thing? We want to make sure that we don't let something like that, you know, get out of control. Um, and then on the outside of the station, there are several... Um, like experiments installed that have, um, you know, have experiments that are looking at, you know, is there any life growing out here? I don't know if they've found anything or not. Most of what they're looking at is like, how do these materials behave when they're exposed to the vacuum of space and things like that. But I do know that there have been studies on, um, you know, trying to detect or perhaps taking something out there and seeing if it survives or not. But I have not followed along with that to know what the, what the results are. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, humans spend a lot of time thinking about life, thinking about death, uh, philosophizing about like the meaning of all of this, the purpose, um, trying to understand, like I, I had read something recently where I think it was experiments in Antarctica. Uh, they were saying, well, this through the, I guess it's um, quantum physics there, there might be proof that alternative uh, dimensions are existing at the same time that we are. That maybe you're, you know, uh, I'm saying this in a very elementary <laughs> manner, but I think you get my point. Um, when you're up there, are you also th- thinking about these sorts of things and about your life? And is does it change the way that you've looked at life or death? I would imagine like looking out and seeing Earth and maybe thinking how small it looks would have like a great impact on, on your thinking about things. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you go to, and I, I'm sure you've felt this too. I don't think you have to go to space to feel this kind of thing, right? This, mm. um, I don't know, this sense of awe and wonder with what surrounds you. Right. Um, certainly from space, the opportunity to look at our planet 
and like see it as a planet. I mean, how often do we think about where we live as a planet, right? You know, so for me, we go to space, we do all these complex things to get there, to just live and work there for a little while, to get home safely and all the science and everything that's going on. And in the end, what I came home with, I mean, my the real lessons that I had from that experience is that we live on a planet, you know, mm. that we're all earthlings, that the only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere, you know, that blankets and protects us all. And that's what I, I mean, that's the big thing I want to share with people is that, hey, you know, we are already all in space together, <laughs> you know, on, ah. this, on this tiny little planet and um, perfectly placed with respect to the sun to take care of us, to provide the life support system that we need. We have not found any other like it yet, um, not in our own solar system or perhaps in one of those multiverses that maybe they're looking at yeah. what you were talking about. Um and even though it's a small planet, um, you know, kind of in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that takes away from the significance of all the rest of it. Mm. The fact that it is perfectly placed to take care of us, that we are all in space together on it. And um, I think we're just now, maybe with what we're do- going through with all this COVID stuff, where we're having to isolate and take care of each other that way, like live like crew. <laughs> on Spaceship Earth that we're starting to realize that that this this really is, um, I don't know, it's a place we need to respect a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you, ca- you came back from the space station in one of the Soyuz capsules? No, both. I trained for Soyuz and okay. that would have been a rescue vehicle for me, but I, um, I flew both times on the space shuttle. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I guess it's the same and I'll get into in, in a moment some of the questions I have about like blasting off, but it, I guess it's similar for returning. Um, are you, is there any fear? Like I know obviously throughout time there've been launches that were unsuccessful. Uh, is there any fear upon launching or returning or even almost like a, an acceptance of your mortality and the fact that like there's a potential this might not work. I, I mean, I think there is an acceptance that way. I think all of us understand, you know, to some degree the the risk associated. I mean, when you do, when you put 7 million pounds of exploding rocket, you know, thrust underneath you, that's, that, I mean, it's a generally dangerous thing to kind mm. of do, <laughs> yeah. but um, I think we understand it. Um, you know, we've, determine that, and I think you have to in your own mind too, that there's acceptable risk associated with that. And I think for most astronauts, if not all, it's not what we go and do is not just about the adventure of launching on a rocket and flying in space and floating and stuff. I think it's that we all realize that we're going to be part of something that really is bigger than us. It's part of something that is helping to improve life on earth. That's It's part of something that's furthering these, you know, peaceful, successful international relationships that we've developed. I mean, that's, that's a significant thing to be a part of. And I can tell you, as a person who had a seven-year-old son, when I flew the first time, you don't, you don't go do something like that. Like, oh, this is, this just going to be fun. I think I'll just go do some fun. Um, As far as fear goes, um, I don't think it's really a fear. I think it's certainly a respect. It's, uh, you know, an acknowledgement that there is risk. 
but I think we're more anxious about what it's going to feel like, about what the work is going to be like, about what it's going to be like to actually get there and do it for real versus having trained so long to do it. Mm. And I, I felt that same way going to space, coming home from space. Um, I think where my fear really lied was that, um, first of all, for launch, I was, I was afraid, I was worried for how my family was feeling, right? It's a lot more difficult to watch somebody <laughs> you know, la- that you love launch on a rocket ship than it is to be the person strapping in. Wow. Okay? So there was that. And then in space, my fear was that something would happen to my son while I was up in space and that I wouldn't be able to get home and do anything about that, right? I couldn't be part of whatever the solution might've been. So um, it was never really a fear about what was gonna happen with the rocket ship or what was gonna happen with the station while I was there. It was more kind of the interpersonal, you know, family relationship side of it. It's another <laughs> another movie thing that pops in my head, but um, I guess there, there's no possible way to have communication with your family while you're up there. Oh, we I've talked to my family every day. Oh, wow! Every day we have really really great communication. Both um, there was a satellite phone kind of thing on board the space station, so. I, I did. I, I spoke to my family once or twice a day um, and I could call friends if I wanted to. And, you know, people just, hey, I'm calling you from space kind of thing. Uh, once a week, we had a video conference, which was wow, really nice. That's a lot easier now. Um, families can even be out just with an iPad at the soccer game and show, you know, their spouse or significant other, you know, their kids playing soccer if they want to and stuff. Wow. It's very good. And, and email, I mean, there's email um, available as well. That's not always the best way to communicate, but it's available. Mm. And um, yeah, the communication is awesome. And and that's because, I mean, we are, we're in low Earth orbit. You know, you go to Mars and it's not going to be so timely, but, um, but I think we'll still always try to prioritize how we communicate back with people on Earth. Wow. When you're launching, yeah. um, do you have responsibilities while you're taking off? Is there something that you need to be doing? Is it even possible to move with the G-forces? Yeah, it's, it's really not bad. Um, you know, on the space shuttle, it was the maximum G's were three G's. So it felt like three of you sitting on top of you. And um, you really about the first two and a half minutes while the boosters were strapped on and lit. You, I mean, you're shaking like, I mean, it was kind of funny. I remember like being, it was humorous to me about how much I felt my body shaking, like inside, like jello shaking kind of thing. And, but you are, everybody has tasks as part of the crew. Um, A lot of it for about the first minute and a half after launch is really monitoring systems, communicating with the ground to make sure everything is progressing the way it's supposed to calling off different, you know, milestones along the way, you know, okay, I see we're here, we're here, we're here, you know, the, you know, this system has done what it's supposed to do. But at some point the crew has control to fly the vehicle, um, can maneuver it. Um, as soon as we, you know, dump the solid rocket boosters in the tank, we actually have tasks to do like, you know, firing thrusters to get into a certain orbit and, uh, and all kinds of stuff to configure systems. So yeah, got a lot of control. Wow. And, and, and how much, I know there's in, intensive years long training for this type of stuff. And yeah. in a little bit, I'll, I'll ask about the aquatic stuff, but uh, how accurate 
is that training in, in preparing you for both the launch and being in space? Like how, how close does it get to being the actual thing? Well, there's nothing down here on Earth yet that really simulates very well the actual feel of launch. And I would say the same thing. There's not anything really yet that gives you, like we don't have any zero gravity room or anything mm. like that where you can just go and float in the air. I mean, there's nothing like that. We have an airplane where you can go do these parabola, you know, like kind of like being on a roller coaster and you come over the top and you float for, you know, 15 seconds and then come down. But, um, but the training is awesome. I mean, I remember after we got docked to the space station and the hatches opened up and floating through from the shuttle onto the space station and having it feel familiar. Like wow. just because the mock-ups and the training we do are so good that aside from the fact that I was floating and, you know, there were some different things on the wall and stuff, the smell of the place, the look of it, just the feel of it, it felt familiar to me. So that's good when you feel that way. Yeah, yeah I'd say so. Yeah, yeah another movie thing. <laughs> <laughs> Often you'll see, uh, you know, there's no gravity. They enter a module, they hit a button. All of a sudden there's gravity and now like things are much more like Earth and they can walk around and things are a bit normal in regards to gravity. Is that within the realm of possibility one day? Um, it's totally within the realm. And what you normally see happening um, in most of the movies is that you'll see the spacecraft where it's kind of spinning. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll see these spacecraft that spin and that's kind of that rotation then, you know, imparts in, in this, this gravity or this, this load on whatever's inside of it that causes you to be able to walk around the, you know, the station or whatever. Um, we call it artificial gravity, but um, it really, I think it's something that we're, we're going to need to do at some point when we send people off to Mars on these longer, you know, on these longer space trips, it's just expensive to do it, you know, engineering wise. So we haven't really done that yet. Um, but yeah, we're definitely going to need to do that. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, my husband has this really great saying about how we take sci-fi and turn it into sci-fact. Mm. And when you look at, you know, a lot of what just seemed so fantastical, you know, 50 years ago and just like it was just our imagination and, and we do it. The fact that I'm holding my phone in front of me and talking to you this way and um, the, that essentially all of the world's knowledge is captured on the interweb somewhere that I can get access to. Um, that's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm going to use this moment to sort of plug and say hi to my dad. So, uh, Okay. My dad's name is Larry, and um, he's uh, infinitely interested in space. He actually, I, I gave him... Good job, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> I gave him uh, a job this weekend. You know, he listens to every episode. This is going to be number 172 now. And so wow. I said, hey, dad, it's your job this weekend to come up with some questions. You know a lot more about this stuff than I do. <laughs> but as a kid, he exposed me... Uh, to a lot of sci-fi movies uh, and books and things that piqued my interest at a young age. And I think it was, I think it was 92, you probably know, 92 or 94 when a comet uh, had broken apart and hit Jupiter. Um, mm -hmm. And my dad had this like incredible telescope at the time that was like remote powered and we would take it up to the beach and our neighbors and friends would come and we would all go and look at like the dark spots now on Jupiter and you'd see... 
uh, you'd see the holes in it. And that was for a kid. It's like, holy crap, this is incredible. Um, so I know he's geeked about this conversation. So hi, dad. But I also bring that up to say that, you know, he, he got me interested in this stuff at quite a young age. I'm wondering um, in early life if there was, a, you know, a turning point or a catalyst for you in, in terms of getting interested in this stuff. And if at a young age you ever wanted to be an astronaut or if that even seemed like a, a realistic possibility, maybe. <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, and, you know, hi, Larry, and thanks for sharing what you love with uh, Tim. I think it's important. I mean, that's, when I think back, I think the greatest inspiration for me was really, and I don't know if they were like consciously doing this or not, but I mean, that my parents shared what they loved with me, right? My mom, she's a nurse. She very creative. You know, she sewed almost all of our clothes growing up. I can, I can barely get to Target to get my son's new underwear <laughs> or something, let alone, you know, think about sewing his clothing. And, you know, that was back in the 60s and 70s where, you know, pottery and macrame and hooked rugs were the thing. And she always included me and my sisters in that, right? And so, and if I was going to get to a ballet lesson or to softball practice or whatever, it was because my mom got us there, right? And my dad loved building and flying small airplanes. And so if, um, if we were going to hang out with my dad, it was going to be at the local airport. And, um, you know, and thankfully to my mom, she would, we'd all go out there. And that's where I developed a love of flying. I mean, I started to, to want to fly myself. Um, I wanted to know how things fly. Um, I'm old enough that I did watch that first moon landing with my family. I have vivid memory of that. But your question is good because at that time, I, I mean, I was six or seven then, but I think even at six or seven, you realize that when people are walking on a moon that you're looking at up in the sky, that that's a pretty extraordinary thing mm. <laughs> right, to have happen. And um, so for the longest time, I just thought, wow, that's really cool, you know, that people can do that. But the astronaut job, it was a really long time before I thought that that wasn't just something other special people can do. And, uh, and considered it for myself. And it really took, you know, I wanted to know how things fly. I studied engineering. I'm like, if you want to know how airplanes fly, why would you not want to know how rocket ships fly? Kind of went down that path. And I wanted a job with NASA. And when I graduated from college, the shuttle program was getting back up and running after the Challenger accident. And I got in over at Kennedy Space Center and, and never looked back. And it was there probably about nine into the 10 years that I worked there where I started really realizing what astronauts do and that 99.9% .9 of what an astronaut does is not flying in space. You know, mm. sadly, every astronaut wants it to be the other way around where <laughs> you're in space and, but you're not. And the majority of that was like, I was already doing pretty much as a NASA engineer. And that's what kind of tripped me to, wow, you know, maybe I could at least consider this. And I spoke to a couple of people that I considered to be mentors. And honestly, all they really did for me was say, Nicole, pick up the pen and fill out the application. Mm. And I wouldn't, I don't think I ever would have done it on my own. I would have second guessed myself right out of the opportunity of like, oh, why would they ever pick me? I've never done anything. I haven't done this yet or blah, blah, blah. You know, I would have talked myself out of it because of some like silly self-confidence thing or whatever when picking up the pen and filling out the application was 
probably the only thing I had control of in that whole process. And um, so I do, I try to tell kids all the time. I'm like, you know, if you're interested in something, you got to pick up the pen at least. You got to do the thing you have control of, you know, to put yourself in a place to at least have the opportunity. Wow. It was, um, was it around, it was around 2000 that you first sort of, I guess, maybe got accepted or recognized as a person who would be going into space? So I was selected into the astronaut class of 2000. So every couple of years, NASA puts out, a, you know, kind of a call for people to apply for, for the astronaut job. You can't just anytime apply. They've got to put out a call. And then they go through this whole process of looking through the thousands of applications they get. And then they choose a group of people at one time. And so, and they're about to do that again. I think, um, maybe August of this year or next year, they'll be selecting another group of people. So I got selected in the, um, the 18th group of NASA astronauts. And that was in the year 2000. Do they do in addition to the years of physical preparation, do they do any sort of like psychological profile of you and make sure that like you're, <laughs> you're mentally fit for this? Yeah. When, when you interview for the job, um, you go through this whole like selection process and they have like written psychological exams and these psychological interviews. And then I would just say that everything you ever do, they're looking at mm. you in some way psychologically. Okay. Is she a whack job? Is she going to, you know, go crazy here? Is she not going to be nice to people? You know, I mean, what is it that, and, and they're just assessing that all the time. Wow. Yeah. Are there people yeah. who ever get accepted and then don't make the cut because of that? Um, I've never heard of anybody like that. Um, there have been people that have been accepted before and then didn't end up flying in space for one reason or another, mm. um, usually because it was taking too long to get an assignment and they wanted to go off and do something else. But I've never heard of any like psychological concern. I mean, the screening is really pretty good. And quite honestly, I looked at some of those tests that they give you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if you can't figure out how to answer that question, there is something wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> if you answer it that way, they're going to know. <laughs> yeah, I think I watch yeah. too many movies. There's always like the one guy who, when they're up there, tries to sabotage everything and it all goes yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, we have great tape for that. You tape them down. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, never had to do that. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's a good thing. You, um, yeah. you spend 18 days in an underwater facility. Can you talk about that experience? Uh, that was like, you know, we most of our training, regardless of whether you're learning about the systems on the spaceship you're going to fly or how to do a spacewalk or whatever, really and truly it's all about how do you work as a team. Mm. And we do some really great um, like expeditionary training too, like going off into the Utah Canyon lands or winter survival in Moscow and um, Canada and sea survival in the Black Sea. I mean, we do these really great um, like crew training things uh, like that. But to go live underwater for 18 days on, it's the Aquarius habitat. It's the only undersea laboratory like it in the world. Um, it's about the size of a school bus. It sits at 60 feet underwater off the coast of Key Largo and it was absolutely the best analog to what it was going to be like to live and work in space. I mean, wow. every aspect of it. You know, when you think about it, um, you know, once you're down 60 feet, 
diving um, for an hour, you can't just swim safely to the surface. You know, your body's saturated with nitrogen. So you have to go through, you know, like almost like a, um, a decompression to be able to, you know, to, to go back up to the surface. And so we get down there and we, our bodies become saturated. We live at that depth inside of the habitat and we do all of this exploration and work outside of the habitat, but we cannot swim to the surface to um, either go home or escape if something's going wrong. So if something happens in that extreme environment, you have to deal with it at 60 feet underwater, just wow. like if something happens in space, you're going to have to deal with it there. Is that, uh, is that standard? Does everyone go through that training or was this something special? Um, they, more and more people are doing it. It's something that they really started when we were starting to fly the International Space Station program where people were going to be gone on longer duration flights, not just going on a shuttle flight for two weeks, but going and living for months at a time on the station. So um, both from the standpoint of how the crews, you know, could learn how to live and work that way but also to look at how can you do, um, you know, different kinds of experiments um, because you're going to be there for a longer duration. And I mean, when we went and did the training mission at Aquarius, it was, it was an actual mission. We had real scientists engaging with us and we were doing um, experiments inside of the habitat and surface exploration kinds of development and experiments outside the habitat, just like we would have if we were in space. Wow. I mean, I'm thinking about yeah. these experiences that you've had. You're you're part of a group of people that is like point oh 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 one percent of people who've ever been able to experience these things. This might make me sound like a real jerk right now, but there's times when I have difficulty relating or sort of like getting up, getting getting excited for certain things like. I don't know if it's a Friday night and people are like, hey, let's let's all go to the bar. It's going to be so great to go to the bar or like, let's go to the water park. It's going to be so great. Yeah. And in the back of my mind, maybe this makes me really sound like an elitist, but sometimes I think like, ah, like, you know, I've cooked and eaten pig brains in the Philippines. I've hiked a volcano at midnight. Like these are things that I've experienced that maybe it's sort of like what people call chasing the dragon where I'm like, ah, those are sort of my watermark for really exciting things. Um, and so I have sort of maybe trouble getting excited about things that, you know, to me don't seem that wild and adventurous. Uh, I wonder like, you know, being part of such a small group of people who've experienced this stuff, like if you ever have trouble relating in that way to, uh, you know, things that other people get excited about. Well, I think, um, I, I have to admit, I, you know, I'm old, so I don't necessarily get excited about going to the bar anymore. And I'll yeah. probably <laughs> myself if I go to the water park, but, um, <laughs> but you know, the way I've tried to look at it is, um, it's just like now where we're isolated in our homes, right? Um, we can't get out as much. We can't even really go to the bar, even if we wanted to. Um, and so uh, what I've tried to encourage people to do is just kind of, I don't know, it's like a mindfulness thing, right? You know, to appreciate in a different way what surrounds you, mm. right? I mean, we did that while we were in space. I mean, essentially inside of the space station, it's a, it's a pretty sterile environment. There's not, there's no real nature besides, except for the, you know, the human beings and some plant experiments maybe. 
So for us, nature was making this connection through the window, like looking at Earth, experiencing Earth in a whole, a whole new way. Um, I'm trying to do that same thing right now. And like looking out my window at this backyard that I thought I knew, you know, before the whole COVID thing and just really appreciating it in a whole new way, right? Um, I think that's what I try to encourage people is there are so many like awesome and wonderful experiences that you can have just by looking a little bit differently at what normally surrounds you. Mm. And, um, and certainly when you have the opportunity to do things like you have have had, um, to go see parts of the planet that, you know, that a lot of people just don't get to experience. Um, I think it's our obligation then to, to, to share that, to figure out how do I share that with, with people who might not ever have the chance to do that and allow them to take something from it that gets them looking at just even what surrounds them every day in a whole new way. Because I'll tell you, you know, there are things in my backyard that I never noticed before. You know, the little creatures living under the hibiscus tree, mm. or, you know, whatever it might be that it's because I just didn't take the time to, to look for it. And, you know, people talk about going to space and exploring further off our planet. I'm like, man, there are so many things about this place. And you, you talk about a volcano, I mean, that are otherworldly mm. in a way that if you didn't know you were on Earth, you might think you were on Mars or on some other planet already. And where things can live here on Earth that we can't, you know, those, what are they, like the acid lakes in Ethiopia or something, and things are living in those lakes. We can't live there, but things do. So it encourages me to think that there, there quite likely is life on these other planets and these other places just because of what Earth can show us. And so, yeah. I don't know what to say. A long rambly answer, sorry. No, that's great. <laughs> and, you know, I have all these things from books I've read that pop into my head. So I know it probably sounds a little silly sometimes, but when you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, like planet seeding, right? Does that idea sound ridiculous to you or uh, like a potential possibility? Um, I don't, you know, I don't like to think of anything as sounding ridiculous. You know, I think there's, we, we have to kind of consider those things that we might think might be a little ridiculous to get us to some place that could be real. Um, you know, for sure. I mean, people for, for a long time have been talking about how do we terraform a planet that at this point couldn't support life as it is. I mean, Mars is in that, in that situation right now. There's, you know, we can't just go to Mars and just live like we want to live on Mars. We've got to, we've got to either build things or, you know, reconstruct that planet in some way in order to survive there. Hmm. Um, so I don't think those things are ridiculous. Um, I, I hope I see some of them in my lifetime, you know, yeah. uh, yeah, I think there's, as soon as I'm going to show you, I've got this little thing that I know we're not right. People who are listening to this won't see it, but um, that same, one of those same people that encouraged me to pick up the pen and fill out the application was a person that I worked for when I started at NASA at Kennedy Space Center. And his motto is, um, here's how we can, not why we can't, right? Oh, cool. And um, when you think about it, I mean, the way we do really challenging things is by approaching it that way. Okay, how can we do this? How can we make this happen? Not, oh, here's all the reasons why we can't do that. You know, let's bring it down. <laughs> yeah. It really has to be the positive attitude. You don't go and um, explore a volcano <laughs> 
with the, oh, here's all the stuff that's going to go wrong. You go into it with, okay, how, how do I safely navigate this experience I'm about to have? How do I, you know, put in place all the things I need to, to make it happen? Um, you know, not convincing yourself you're going to die before you walk out of there. Well, then how do you feel about, you know, recently there were like military photos and videos that came out with people said that, well, those are UFOs. This is now proof of that. Um, and I think there's even been a few of like some of the original astronauts who said like, yeah, there are, you know, secrets and conspiracies about alien life forms that are covered up. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's like insulting to hear as someone who's been to space. I don't know if that seems like something that maybe is also possible. I, you know, I don't like to doubt anything really. Mm. I, um, I've never seen anything myself or heard or know of any conspiracy that, um, would lead me to believe otherwise. But, um, certainly there were things I saw in space that surprised me, you know, like to see a shooting star below you between your spaceship and earth. I mean, that was completely out of nowhere to me. Didn't know that that would happen at all. And, you know, it's a completely explainable thing, but you could look at something like that and think, holy moly, what was that flying, you know, flying by me? Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not one to second guess, you know, other people, unless there's facts to show that it was or wasn't there. I just know what I experienced. Yeah. Um, I think we've got to be open to all kinds of things that we just might not understand right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a good mindset. Yeah. You know, I've worked for, for 10 years in education here in New York And I know Mm -hmm. that you are heavily involved in arts and in like STEM education and in promoting that. And you have a foundation. I was wondering if you could take a moment to to talk about that and to maybe, I don't know if it's a philosophy that you have about incorporating uh, science and the arts. Yeah, I mean, I I totally... um First of all, I think our kids should be using their whole brains, right? Yeah. (laughs) So let's not just shove them down a path because they seem to like something that prevents them from taking advantage of all of the resources they have available to them. So I like to think of that as using your whole brain. Because I think, you know, if you're in education, I think our whole goal is that our children become really, really successful problem solvers, right? That they, they can figure out ways for us to overcome the challenges, you know, of life on earth. Um, to make life better. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I had the chance to paint while I was in space. Um, wow. and when I was thinking, yeah, it was really fun. Watercolors in space. That was fun. And when I was trying to, you know, figure out, um, what I would do, how I would share this, this space flight experience I had, as I was thinking about retiring from NASA, I knew that art needed to be a part of it. Um, and at first I thought of that from kind of the personal standpoint, you know, I'm going to do art anyway. Why don't I use my artwork, which really at this point is all based on what I saw through the window of my spaceship too, you know, earth observation and stuff like that. Why don't I use that to share the spaceflight experience and get people that might not even know we have a space station interested in it, you know, just because they looked at my artwork, whether they like it or not was really not important to me. It was more, how can I share this backstory of what's going on in space? And as I was doing that, and I was enjoying that, um, I was invited to participate in a project um, in Houston where an, an artist who has become a great friend and part of our Space for Art Foundation, Ian Sion, he wanted to do something where he brought the pediatric cancer kids that he was working with 
um, into a space project. And so long story short, he's the artistic genius behind these um, art spacesuits. And we have grown to working with kids, not just in one hospital in one city, but um, working with children now in um, over 50 countries um, to bring their artwork together into spacesuits like the one behind me. Um, a couple of them have actually flown to and from the space station. But it's really to get these children <clears throat> who are going through something that you hope is the worst thing they ever have to deal with in their entire lives um, to be able to transcend that experience a little bit through through art and to see their artwork come together into something bigger than just, you know, what they might stick on their refrigerator at home. And to recognize that, you know, that there are kids all around the world that are um, dealing with things similar to them and how, um, you know, that they can be, they can know that they are earthlings and here on spaceship earth and, you know, think about their futures as part of, part of that work. Um, and we've got some really wonderful partners, the spacesuit company, you know, you're talking about spacesuits in the beginning of this, um, the spacesuit company that makes our real spacesuits, ILC Dover, they're the ones who volunteer to sew these, children's artwork together into these suits and you know they see the value in it and um, I found that um, I really think you know I've found my new mission in life which is to take what I experienced what I learned from flying in space and apply it to the work with these kids around the world it's been great yeah that's amazing and you know I obviously I greatly respect that and I think you know in the world right now representation is really important. You know, when I was a kid and we, we learned about astronauts, right? Like most of the faces that I saw were men. And even in the movies and things like that now, like I forget what it was called, but the one last year came out with like Ryan Gosling and there was, uh, I think, Ad Astro with Brad Pitt. It's like you see a lot of these men and you see a lot of white men. Um, so for, you know, young girls to be able to see like, yeah, I did this too. And I, I have a lot of firsts and, you know, a lot of records and, and my name is tied to a lot of things. I think that's like really deeply inspiring, um, you know, for, for, for young girls that want to get into science or astronomy or even the air force and things like that. So I think that, yeah. uh, you're a really, a really cool and important voice for them. So, um, <laughs> I think that's great. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe, um, maybe I'll wrap it here. Like in, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, where do you see this going maybe in the next 10 years? You know, we said it's, it's been 10 years for you, uh, up to now with, um, the space force. And there seems to be this, uh, or with the SpaceX launch, there seems to be this renewed interest both, uh, with our government and maybe just in sort of like the collective conscious of, of people, um, do you have any predictions for the next 10 years? Like, will, will we be on Mars? Like, what, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I don't know if we'll be on Mars in 10 years with people, but I think that we'll definitely be back. I, well, I guess I should never use the words definitely. My hope is that we will be back on the moon and establishing a permanent presence there. Um, you know, I, I look at the moon, it's like this purpose-built space station for us, right? Um you know, everything we can do there can be about lifting some of the things that are not so good for the planet off of it to improve life here and as a platform for helping us to get to places like Mars. Mm. Um, I think it's this beautiful place for us to take um, to take respectful advantage of. Um, so I see us on the moon. I see more and more people having the opportunity to travel to space. You know, with companies like SpaceX and Boeing, 
um, for sure. But there's a lot of other companies out there too. You know, um, one that comes to mind is Virgin Galactic that's looking at, you know, suborbital flights. You're not going to circle the planet, but you can go up, spend about six minutes, see Earth from space, come back down. Wow. You know, ultimately with <clears throat> the goal of getting from point A to point B on the planet, you know, quicker um, in terms of travel, but it'll start to give more and more people this experience of, you know, this perspective of who and where we are in space together from looking out the window and seeing it that way. Um, I think that for sure is going to happen. And um, my hope is that we'll just continue to think about the way we explore space as this pathway to improving, continuing to improve life on Earth for everyone. Well, that is really exciting. I'm, yeah. ho- I'm hoping then in ten, yeah. in 10 years, I could do my own story from <laughs> a suborbital flight. That would be amazing. Yeah, take me with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you ever, do you ever want great. to go back? I would love to go back. Um, I'll probably have to become independently wealthy to do that. I don't know. But yeah, you can ask me when I'm 95, do I want to go back to space? The answer would be yes. <laughs> wow. It's, it's a wonderful experience. Okay, so I'll tell everyone, you're very active on Twitter. Just go to the show notes for this episode. Uh, You'll find Nicole's website, uh, the Twitter account, uh, Instagram. Give all that stuff a follow so you can can learn about the foundation and and see what you're up to. Yeah, Yeah, do the same for Space for Art Foundation. We've got a project going on now called Beyond where we're trying to get kids from every country involved. Um, You know, everybody's going through a little bit of isolation now. And um, yeah, we'd like to get the whole planet tied in on this next one. Amazing. All right. Thanks, Tim. That is a wrap on episode 172 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Nicole for coming on this episode. This one was a real treat. Um, Yeah, I've had a a number of people, not even just people, but a number of like interests and professions and areas of the world sort of in a bucket list of sorts in my brain. And for a while now, I've been like, wow, how cool would it be if I could, if I could get an astronaut on here? And I was able to do it. So a uh, little personal accomplishment for me and just really excited to get to, to share her story with you all. Thank you too to my dad who did a lot of research for this episode and who provided a lot of support and always provides a lot of support for the podcast. So thanks, Bob. And thank you to all of you Voyagers for tuning in as always. All right, folks, thanks again, and please, please, please take care of each other. I'll catch you next time.